Thanks for pressing play. Creativity, innovation, and collaboration are words we hear a lot in business. And yet, as you and I both know, too many company cultures cultivate the exact opposite. So what can business leaders and entrepreneurs and creators of all types learn from the greatest musical minds in the world? Now that's a question. Our guests today, Panos Pane and Michael Hendricks, are the authors of a rockin' new book called Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation. And Dr. Deepak Chopra says, quote, For a long time, researchers have known that musical intelligence can awaken the nonlinear mind to healing, creativity, and innovation. This book is a roadmap for innovators, entrepreneurs, and those seeking new avenues for exploring and reimagining the future, end quote. How's that? Now, Michael is a partner and global director of innovation at the legendary consulting firm IDEO, and he teaches entrepreneurship at the Berkeley College of Music. Panos is an entrepreneur who is now senior vice president for global strategy and innovation at the Berkeley College of Music, and he's also a fellow at MIT Connection Science. For their breakthrough new book, they spoke with musical legends like Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, Pharrell Williams, Gloria Estevan, and T-Bone Burnett, just to name a few. What follows is a real deep dialogue about the power of music as an insight to innovation and creativity. You'll learn Justin Timberlake's key idea for being creative in the studio and pay close attention to what uh, Beyonce's take on collaboration is and why musicians are constantly creating not editing the power of curiosity and pay a special attention to their thoughts on how to build legendary teams. This is Christopher Lockhead, follow your different. And because we're committed to real dialogues, you'll never hear an ad read in the middle of a guest conversation on this podcast. We are for people who want real deep conversations with some of the most legendary minds of our time. We're brought to you by my good friends at NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to uh, build a legendary foundation for your business. Visit splunk.com slash D2E to bring data to everything. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first organic flax milk, and I love it. Visit Malibu Milk, milkwithay.com today. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. So, uh, as you can tell, I love music like you guys do. And I have a funny opening question for you, which is before every podcast, I like to listen to music to get myself in the right mood. And there's two or three songs I play. And so the question I have for you is, why do I like to play Motorhead's cover of David Bowie Heroes before doing this with you? Why is What is it about human beings that likes to do that? <laughs> I, I love that, man, because I think Lenny is completely underestimated. You know, I like the juxtaposition of Motorhead and Bowie. Go figure. Maybe that's what this book is all about, right? Have you ever heard the cover? I have not. It's not, fucking yeah. incredible. And I love the original, of course. 
But I really, uh, the Motorhead version of Heroes is one of my top 10 favorite songs. I'm going to have to go look that up. <laughs> it, it will make it into a reprint of the book. You know, the next, the next print version under, uh, you know, remixing, we'll, we'll add Lenny's cover of, uh, of the Bowie song. It's a great song, I to, too. I have to ask, like, what is the reinterpretation of the Robert Fripp droney guitar going on with Motorhead? What do they do? It's real punky. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a, a, a heavy uh, rhythm guitar and they have kind of a, a screaming uh, lead guitar playing the uh, kind of the eerie uh, piano piece. And it's much faster. Let me change some of the lyrics. <laughs> and uh, and. And it's fucking awesome. And the video is fucking awesome, too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. But what is it about, like, you know, as human beings, we listen to music to pump us up, to set a tone. You know, you walk into uh, a place of worship and often there's music and uh, there's music everywhere. There's music in restaurants. There's music in cafes. Uh, there's even music in elevators, although that music makes me want to put my fist through the elevator. But... There's music everywhere, and in particular, you know, uh, I'm a huge fight fan, and fighters come on to music, and so I like to listen to music before I do this. So what is it about music that sort of sets the table for us? Honestly, I think it's, it's, it's primordial. I mean, we listen, and, and we develop our sense of, of, of hearing before anything else. Maybe it's our mother's heartbeat. Uh, maybe it's, uh, the sound of us being in the womb. There's just something real elemental about music that is unlike anything else. As a matter of fact, scientists at MIT, uh, a few years ago, uh, have discovered that it, our brain has a very specific part of it that processes music, which is one of the reasons that even in patients with very severe Alzheimer's, for example, they may forget everything else. They may forget the name of their daughter or their son or their wife or husband, but they can still respond to a beat or a melody or a lyric from their childhood. Some of them can even sing that lyric or, or, or hum that melody, even though everything else around them is dark and silent. Um, so for me, that, that's what it is. It's the most basic human sense it's what connects us to our humanity and i would say what connects us to the broader universe that's the universe is made of sound ultimately we are made hmm. of sound hmm. we are made of sound S say more about that panels well th think about it right i mean we've we even use um metaphors like oh it vibes right or or hey that sounds cool or I'm, I'll play it by ear. I mean, think of all these metaphors that we use for music in our everyday lives. Or, you know, you're marching to your own drum beat. Or, you know, I'm in the groove. Can we get into the groove together? I mean, on and on and on, right? I got a gig. Even that's a, uh, uh, the gig economy is something that the music business has gifted to the rest of the world, uh, or at least the expression. Um, but if you think of your body, Right. I mean, you you have electromagnetic signals that uh, make your body move and have sounds and and 
you know, we are, our, our, our juices are flowing. Our heart is beating. Um, there's sounds going on all the time. And then we vibrate in, in, in motion, just like nature does. Um, so everything emits sound. It's how we communicate. It's how we respond to stimuli. Um, so I, 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 frankly, I think it's, it's, it's that it's, it, it's humanity. Humanity is sound and sound is humanity. It's like it bypasses all of our conscious thought, you know, or, or a purposeful thought. And it's something deeper than that. Our unconscious, our, I think it's why it appeals to our emotions so much. Right. I mean, I got interested in this idea. There's a body of science called embodied cognition. Have you heard of embodied cognition? I have not, Michael. Tell me. It's what it sounds like. It's the understanding of the world through our bodies and specifically through our five senses. Our five senses send information to our brain first, and then our brain rationalizes the information that it gets from our five senses. So several years ago, I just started wondering about it as a designer. I was like, why are some designs better than other designs? You know, and so much of the conversation is about utility. You know, like you hear talk, talk about the functionality, but I never really believed that utility was the thing because, you know, the, you know, the Swiss army knife isn't preferable to a great sharp chef's knife for slicing vegetables, even though it has like 20 other things it can do. What is that knife that you have in your hand? <laughs> I just happen to have this right here, uh, Michael. Um, this is a, um, it's made by my friends at Cutco. And it's a U.S. Uh, military marine knife. Uh, this is the this is the knife the Marines carry, and uh, you you can get a lot done with this knife. <laughs> and I would take this knife over a Swiss Army knife any day. <laughs> and I can describe this knife. It's like a a single nine inch blade, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very serious blade, and it's got an incredible handle too. That they're very thoughtful about the handle. And you can use the back end of it for a lot and you can tie it to something. And, you know, it's a simple design for the, uh, the Marines, but it's highly functional. It stays sharp forever. Um, it's serrated on this piece and this, the, the bottom piece. Yeah. So I'd take this over a, uh, over a Swiss army. knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so, uh, and on topic, how does it feel to hold? Makes you feel like a man. That's how it makes yeah. you feel. <laughs> like you're ready to do some man shit with it. <laughs> well, I bet it's weighted. I bet it has some weight to it. And um, there's been plenty of studies that show that we humans give importance to things that have weight. So in design, the way that's translated, for example, is like a, the tension on a car door is increased to make the car door feel heavier when you shut it so you feel safer in the car because they're actually been valued they've been engineered to be so light to make the fuel efficiency better that if you didn't have that tension you wouldn't have the resistance and you would go oh man this thing's too flimsy but in reality that's been designed to make you feel the importance so there's all anyway so <laughs> totally uh, going down a rabbit trail. That's but. cool, Michael. I, I didn't know that. It's true. <laughs> I, a, a car, I expect a car door to have some thud to it. And if it doesn't, you assume it's a cheap, shitty car. At least I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, but it's a trick. Was, um, it's a trick to make me feel good. It's got nothing to do with functionality. Exactly. And in fact, yeah. in the book, we have a story that is just about that, uh, which is, uh, 
that when BMW first put out its i3 uh, car, the electric vehicle, the because it's extremely lightweight, because it's an electric vehicle, people felt it wasn't safe. Why? Because when they closed the door, it just didn't have that, you called it the thud sound, right? It didn't feel, it didn't feel heavy and hefty that it would sort of envelop you and protect you. And they realized that what it, all it was, it was just, it wasn't so much that the car wasn't safe. As a matter of fact, it was probably safer than uh, most of passengers, passenger cars. It was just how people felt. And at the end of the day, that's what mattered. So they re-engineered the doors and added extra tension in the springs so they would feel heftier, heavier, more protective. And it's one of the things that we unpack in, in Two Beats Ahead, this idea of sensing, right, which is what we're talking about here. The music creates an emotion, a sense, and sometimes you can't even quite describe it, but it makes you feel something. And at their best, that's what the best products out there do they make you feel something either by holding it or by engaging with it that you can't can't quite put your finger out on it but but you know when you experience it so i gotta tell you guys first of all i really enjoyed your book it's great and there's so many pieces of it but i i, I gotta start with you about the beginning on this which is the beginning of your book is about listening and you've got a bunch of pages here that have nothing on them other than two beats ahead and listening, which is the chapter. And I don't know how many, how many six or eight pages you got here of just blankness before you get to the rest of the point. But what a great visual experiential way uh, to tell people to shut up and just listen. <laughs> and you do it yeah, at the start uh, of your book and the book is about music and the first thing you do is not talk about music, but hey, shut your brain up, get a blank sheet going in your head. Now start reading the book. That's how I interpret it. But I, I'm curious, why does a book start off with no writing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Silence. Silence is actually what it starts with. And that's, you know, partly what we wanted to do. I mean, I'll, I'll, I know what Pontus, I know Pontus is going to tell a little story here, so I won't take it from him. But we just did want, we wanted, one, we don't, we read business books. Um, I don't think we really enjoy them. <laughs> and so we committed, when we were to start writing this book. We're like, we're not going to write one of those books. We're going to write a book that has some uh, surprise in it that isn't repetitive and redundant to the point of making you exhausted by the time you get to the end. And um, that's fun. And so as we were talking about the beginning, you know, the, the first chapter is about listening. It's about uh, opening yourself up to the things that are the unexpected around you, not prejudging them. So we thought, what a better way to start the book than to start the book with 12 blank pages <laughs> that before you've read anything, they force you to confront this idea. And then after you've confronted it and you've been confused by it, you'll get into the book and you'll sort it out. But we wanted that, that experience to be the first thing you, you have. Well, and of course, you immediately introduced this concept of the space between, right? And was it Louis Armstrong who originally said it was about the space between the notes? Miles Davis, yeah. Okay, but that that notion is a very powerful one. And I think of a lot of the musicians that I admire the most, particularly guitar players in this regard, right? You, you think about um, uh, Keith Richards, 
right? He's not the greatest technical guitar player in the world, um, but he's all about the space between. Um, and of course, Dave Matthews wrote a song about it. <laughs> and so what's this notion of, of, so there's this sitting in silence, which I interpret to be being open to serendipity, being open to the different, being open to the orthogonal, being open to something fresh and different that maybe at first blush, your ear might not appreciate, but who knows if you hang with it a little bit, who knows what happens. So there's that element of it. And then there is this element of the pause that refreshes that space between the G and the F. <laughs> so tell me why those two things matter. Why sort of getting into that blank place where we could hear from a fresh perspective matters. And then how does that, how and why does that lead into this idea of space between right off the top of your book? Well, a few, a few ideas to unpack. First, I think today there's so much broadcasting and not enough receiving, right? There's not enough listening. And we're all biased towards action. But what if the opposite occurred? What if, what if you just decided not to do something rather than do something? I mean, think how much COVID, which is preventing us from doing everything we did before, has created revelations for people or helped them discover people or their own homes or their own loved ones in a totally different way, right? Because we all just stopped. And... I think part of it is that, like, we're so used to acting, believing that we can force an outcome, but sometimes the best outcome is one that is unforced, that is natural. And we tend to think of music as sound, but if you think about it, what makes it music is as much the absence of sound as it is sound. You think of a painting as what the painter puts on a canvas, but it's also as much as what the painter decided not to put on that canvas that makes it what it is. And in life or in business, our fates are determined by as much as from what we decide not to do as from what we decide to do. Uh, so we wanted to start the book in a way that made the reader just stop and, and, and pay attention to themselves, first and foremost. What when you start a book, you're just sort of like beginning a run or or diving into a, bo a body of water, right? You're you're in, and it's like the shock, and then you're like going. And we wanted to have the opposite, like instead of going, what if you just stop? Uh, and also, yeah, we started this discussion about Lenny and Bowie, and you know, we kind of wanted to stick it to the man. <laughs> we didn't want to start a book. That, we we didn't want to start a book that. that the traditional way, man. Uh, that, uh, and, Fuck and, you guys. We're going to start a book with no writing. <laughs> exactly. We're going to make you waste a bunch of money printing a bunch of empty, empty pages that nobody needs to have in a book. But remind me who your publisher is again. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're listening to it as we speak. Uh, uh, there's nobody uh, here. It's just us. I, 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 think, I, th I think it's why they love us. But uh uh, look, the the other thing is, I I, I kind of um, you know when when I first moved to America in '91, Acting Baby came out, the U2 album, and the first song 
this is after rattle and hum and after the Joshua tree you two had a very particular sound that everybody was just expecting them to put a new album out that sounded just like the last two. And I think by most accounts, rattle and hum is was probably a bit of a of a of a creative nadir for for the band, at least from the lens of I think nineteen eighty eight or eighty nine, whatever it came out. Uh, rather than today, I think looking back, there's actually a bunch of good stuff there. But long story short, I stood in line at Tower Records at at midnight to to get the album because back then all releases came out on Tuesday. So if you stood in line, you would be the first one to get the tape. It was a tape back then. And I remember taking it home, putting it in my cassette player, and the first song, which I think is Zoo Station, Bono's vocal is all distorted, all messed up. And you know, I literally like ejected the tape. I'm like, what's wrong? And then I looked at the at the at the tape, you know, the extra cassette box, and it said something to the lines of, uh, "Oh, what you're hearing in the first song is not a mistake. It's not a factory default. It's actually intentional." So I I wanted to convince our publishers on the book to put a sticker that says, "No, the first twelve pages of the book, they're not a mistake. <laughs> they're not a manufacturing default. They're intentional." And certainly for the e versions of the book, because they can't flip through and go to whatever page 14 15 Does that mean the, e, the the audio version of the book just starts off with nothing just welcome that's, to that's i hope so i've not actually listened to it <laughs> be interesting to see if they just you know yeah, the guy who, or gal who reads it says welcome to two that's beats it. ahead i'm going to read you the first six pages <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh but uh yeah, Pontus, yeah, that, that warning you just gave, that's a warning I think we should have on the front end of this podcast, too. <laughs> <laughs> totally, man. Hey, I'm, I'm old enough to remember PMRC and Tipper Gore campaigning for stickers. Oh, uh, so, I remember when Tipper know. Gore was the enemy of anybody who loved rock and roll. And, yeah, and guess uh, what? She probably helped sell more albums than anything else in the history of all right? record uh, uh, records put out because the minute there was a parental guidance sticker that's the very reason why i wanted to get the damn thing i'm like oh wasp you know cool man uh, i remember you know, wasp that was a terrible record <laughs> i remember that record <laughs> it's a lot of yeah, twisted sister that was another yeah another record yeah. you know i just i remembered something about the silence thing that I, I had not thought of in, for years, but just to kind of show you how all these ideas start to work together. Like when, when I learned, when I went to art school and learned to draw, one of the first things they teach you to do is don't draw the thing, draw what's in between the things. <laughs> and, and it's about, it's about learning to understand the relationship between objects that you're drawing versus drawing the objects themselves. You know, it's like, if you're trying to draw somebody's face, if you want to really make sure it doesn't look like their face, just you know, try to draw the eye, try to draw the nose, try to draw the mouth. Your proportions will be wrong. It's going to look bad. Everyone's going to laugh at you. But if you if you start to look at you know the space between the eyes, the space between the nose and the mouth, and you draw that and you work your way through it, you get something that's realistic. And I I think there's something instructive there. It's in, it's the same about music. I mean, you're by creating that space, you're starting to understand the relationship between things. Just like Panos was talking about earlier about how COVID has just totally disrupted everything. But in, in that disruption, in that space, we started to recognize the relationships between everything in our lives. And um, I think musicians are just, 
you know, be, through practice have come to, to embody this idea. There's an example in that chapter from Bjork where there's one of her songs called Wanderlust that has like all these sounds from the Reykjavik Harbor, you know, the foghorns from the ships, the, the birds, the lapping waves. And at first, it's kind of just like the noise pollution of a harbor. But the sounds start to happen in a more purposeful way over the course of about a minute and they start to sync up and next thing you know they've turned into a melody they've turned into arrangement and now they're a song you know and and be, being able to be outside on you know on the dock to have all of that become music to you isn't some kind of magical ability an artist has a musician has or you know that bjork has it, it's a gift that we all have but we have to choose to have it. We have to choose to make that space to, to really benefit from it. Yes. And, and in somewhere close to the beginning, you, you to ask a question that stopped me in my tracks. And I'm a much bigger fan of questions than I am of answers. Um, and the question you ask is, as a CEO, who would you hire? An athlete or a musician? So um, maybe unpack that question and then lead me through the answer that you think most CEOs might make. But I, I would I'd love to pop the hood on this one. Well, it's actually from a, a, a real life workshop we were leading with a bunch of CEOs. And, and we've both been CEOs, uh, either in our current jobs or our past jobs. Um, and we were having this conversation. And it was a question that I actually posed. You know, what, what, who would you hire? And, and part of that is because I think the stereotype is that an athlete, and I would say especially in American business, because in, in America, sports are, are put on a, on, a, on, a, on a level that doesn't really, I mean, every, everybody loves sport, but in America, they're defied in, in, in a totally different way than in other parts of the world. It's religion here, right? Particularly football. It, it's it, it's religion, but it's also rewarded in a very different way, even on the collegiate level and so forth and so on. So it's it's a particular culture and orientation towards athletes that um, is different than other other parts of the world. Now, I speak as a Greek and as uh, you know a uh, uh, par part of of the nation that gave birth to the Olympics. So I'm not trying to downplay the importance of sport, but. The bottom line is that we tend to think of athletes as disciplined, committed, they're leaders, they uh, have perseverance, persistence, um, grit, determination, and that they'll just try again and again and again until they get something right. And then the stereotype of, the, of a musician is that they're undisciplined, they're flaky, they're unable to function within most environments. Um, they're Hi, most they're highly, the alcoholic pot smoking uh, yeah, they're, parts. They're, they're, <laughs> exactly. They're, 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 they're a substance abuse uh, <laughs> abuser. Uh, they, they, they're, they're a wimp, right? Uh, they, they wilt at the first sign of criticism on and on. But the truth is that, um, well, musicians are far more adaptable. And they are far more able to work their way through complications. And also it takes a lot, heck of a lot of discipline to master your craft. 
And I would say working in uh, within a collegiate environment of six and a half thousand young people who come to school every day to learn their craft, they are one of the most hardcore, committed, disciplined species on the planet that I've ever seen. And also those very traits that I described about athletes work within one context, but what if that context changes, right? So is that inability to stop trying to do the same thing that again and again, using the exact same approach, just marginally better, when what you need is actually a dramatic rethinking? It, how does that serve you when all environments and conditions have changed around you? Is that determination to win at all costs? Does it always serve you? Does it make you a good collaborator? What if the dimensions of the field, quote unquote, change? What if the goalposts move? Right, winning at what, right? What if the ball? <laughs> yeah, what, what yeah. if the what if the what if the ball is deflated? <laughs> uh, what if you thought it was right. soccer and now it's hockey? <laughs> exactly. But we all know that in real business, all this stuff happens. Conditions change, uh, dimensions change, teams change when you don't expect it, and you require a different way of thinking. Um, so for me, it's not so much a either or. There's many athletes who are musicians. There's many musicians who are athletes. I'm, I'm one of them. But it's more around questioning orthodoxy. And you said you love good questions. That's exactly what this book is. The book doesn't necessarily present a, a, a formula. It doesn't present answers. It makes you stop and think and ask questions because as you get older in life and as you mature as a manager, a business person, a human being, you realize that what's important in life is to continue to question your own assumptions and to continue to put out good questions out there that get people to think, talk, and approach things in a different way. So look at, look at again, uh, what's happened to our world the last year with COVID. Uh, it is about being nimble and adaptive and coping with change. Um, and lastly, I'll say that when you look at the history of the music industry, it often is the first to be disrupted by the advent of a new technology, be it radio in the 30s, TV in the 50s, cable television in the 80s, digitization in, in, in the 90s, social media in the 2000s, blockchain the 2020s. Streaming, of course. Streaming, the migration from ownership to access, and on and on. But it is usually the first one to then almost perform a jiu-jitsu move and, and take that uh, weakness and make it into a strength. And that's what we've seen over and over and over again in the music industry. So it's not surprising that the industry now is growing again for five years in a row. It was the first one to embrace the streaming model. Now you're seeing the, the TV and the movie business embracing the streaming model. Uh, you're talking about non-fungible tokens and NFTs. Well, musicians have been experimenting with blockchain for at least six or seven years right now. Michael wrote a blog post on, on Medium in 2015 about blockchain. I've been involved in the space since 2016 with an initiative we launched together called The Open Music. So this is where the adaptable mindset of musicians actually works in their favor, right? They're not obsessing why uh, you know a ball is not inflated at the precise pressure point or why the dimensions of the field are not 
exactly uh, whatever dimensions of the tennis court or the football field or the soccer pitch ought to be. They just get on with it, right? Uh, and they, yes. they invent, they figure something else out. Well, and one of the things that struck me um, going through your book, guys, is that in the business world, you know, you get, we get taught that this is how it is, right? MBA speak, spreadsheet thinking, uh, even stuff on innovation. You know, the books on, a lot of the books on innovation are very sort of programmatic. Uh, musicians, of course, live in a world where they're expected to be creative. And to your point, Panos, um, you know, what as you're talking right now, I'm thinking about, well, sure, you know, Les Paul invents the electric guitar. And what do guitar players do? They say, well, I want to get one of those, <laughs> right? And then as computerized music and synthesizers start to emerge, what happens? New wave music comes out and 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 then hard rock bands start using it. And then, you know, when more electronics come out and, and the early days of hip hop, right? And then all of a sudden you have, you know, Run DMC and and Aerosmith. And so to your point, you know, when the new the new category of music shows up, many in the old categories go, hey, that's really cool. And, you know, now I have rappers and country singers and, and you know, you have uh, uh, Hasidic Jewish uh, reggae stars, Matus Yahoo, and all this stuff, right? And, yeah, and yeah. you don't hear all this idiocy about cultural appropriation. You don't hear any of that stuff. Music is this giant creative soup and sort of the landscape of creativity is very large. And yet in business... Every car we buy is white or gray and looks exactly the same. The products that we make, every fucking car on the road looks the same. And so why is it musicians allow themselves to be open to innovation, open to technology and give themselves a much bigger uh, canvas to create on than the average Michael car designer, as I criticize them? <laughs> well, I, I man... I can tell you car designers don't want everything to look the same. <laughs> it's just, um, I think a lot of the mainstream buyers are afraid of standing out. You know, there's, um, there's actually a cool, there's a guy named Raymond Lowy. He's a, kind of the father of industrial design, mid-century, 20th century. He had this theory, um, he called it Maya, the Maya principle, most advanced yet acceptable. And he had all of these amazing ideas. He like he basically brought Art Deco into the pop pop culture product language, and he, you know, like um, high speed rail. He designed he designed airplanes. He designed dishware. But his whole theory was like you can't push people past their comfort zone and expect them to come with you. So what you got to do is you kind of have just to ease them forward a little bit at a time, and so that most advanced yet acceptable idea is this idea that you kind of find the line of where everybody is and you push it one more forward knowing that they'll come along. If your idea is actually three or four down the road, um, go ahead and keep it, but don't launch it yet in the market. Um, pull yourself back a little bit and then put it, put it out there. You know, and most things advance that way. I think um, just a little bit of novelty will cause people to shift this way or that way or that way. You know, music does this, like the different mashup of genres you were talking about. Um, you know, I mean, there is so much experimental music today that's just pushing the edges all over the place. And 
but it's not it's not in the mainstream right because it's it's too outside the norm for most of the population but good artists that want to be pop stars they know how to do that maya principle they know how to look out what's the edges and bring them in you know someone who has been great at that her whole career was madonna you know madonna was always great at finding the, the edges of pop culture in music and then bringing it into the mainstream so just radical enough but not too radical yeah yeah i mean i bought, bought dylan did that for folk right when he moved into rock he went electric same kind of idea made a lot of people angry he did but i mean he's iconic still right so it didn't he did it just enough <laughs> just enough he didn't go led zeppelin and everybody <laughs> he wasn't recording <laughs> records with ozzy osbourne <laughs> <laughs> and so there, there's so many, ama I mean, you interview some of the greatest artists working today uh, for this book uh, and you reference many, many. And so I, I just have to ask you the obvious question. I mean, what are the big takeaways that you get from whether it's a Steve High or a, or a T Justin Timberlake or I mean, there's just so many legendary examples what are the big things you want business people, particularly those who are trying to do in innovative breakthrough, new categories and products and companies and business models? You know, what are the things you want us to learn in the business world from these legendary musicians? Well, one of them is they're not afraid to just keep trying. And there's a quote there from Justin Timberlake, um, and he's actually paraphrasing another famous music producer uh, called Max Martin. And a songwriter who says, look, the, in, in the interview that uh, I had with him when he came to Berkeley, I sort of asked him this question about, you know, how do you go about writing a hit song? And says, look, this is the advice that I was given by Max Martin. You just keep writing. That's it. Um, and it's this idea to be, it's this ability to be generative or constantly in the generative mode rather than an editing mode that enables them to come up with breakthroughs. And and Justin says, in the studio, I, I like to dare to suck, right? I like to take chances because it's in that uh, daring that often the unexpected comes, right? And we started this conversation about music and humanity, but that's what makes us humans. It's, it's not perfection, it's imperfection. That's what makes music interesting. It's not perfection, it's imperfection. And whoever we talk to in the book, whether it's Justin or, or Steve I or Gloria Stefan uh, or producers like Hank Shockley, T-Bone Burnett, Imogen Heap, what strikes me is this is, is maybe two things. One, is this, this is, there's, a, there's a quest for discovery. There's a, an innate curiosity that exists among all of them. There, there's still they still retain sort of this childlike curiosity about things that you many adults sadly lose. Right. And it's this curiosity that enables them to just keep asking questions. Um, even when they're at the height of their, of their fame. The, the other one is this, frankly, their ability to collaborate. They don't edit their collaborators, if you will, they don't put them in boxes. They're more curious about how one plus one equals 10 rather than, gee, I'm trying to arrive to two and I have one. So how do I find another one? So it's, it's less uh, algebraic, if you will, and uh, a lot more uh, 
you know, chemical. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's just putting things together and just kind of standing back and seeing, gee, will I blow up the room or will something cool come out of this? Yes. We, um, a while back, we had the musician Nasseri on. He was um, part of Magic, and he's written and produced with, you name it, Robin Thicke, John Legend, Shakira. Yeah, I mean, he's he's mostly been in the background. He just came out with his first EP. Anyway, an amazing guy. And he was on this point, and what he shared with me, and I sort of noticed it, but I hadn't. it hadn't crystallized as kind of a fan, how much music is collaboration today. That, you know, many, it used to be a rare thing when, you know, uh, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton would do a duet, right, in the 70s or early 80s. And today there's duets coming out all the time from megastars and, and there's a lot of the genre bending and audience sharing and all these sorts of things. But he was sharing how making a record today, I mean, there can be dozens and dozens and dozens of people involved in writing playing, producing. And so it's a much bigger collaboration than it was uh, a generation or two ago. And so share with me sort of the uh, musician collaboration mindset versus what you see in the traditional business collaboration mindset. Yeah, Pana, Pana started to allude to it a little bit in that rather than trying to understand the, the whole problem, assume you have an answer and then you know, get the variables in place to help you solve that problem. You instead approach things with a question. So you were talking about the collaboration in a song. I mean, Beyonce is great at this. She's, she had 15 songwriters credited for her song, Hold Up. That was definitely genre defying song, amazing song, but 15 writers on that song. And, you know, for her, she was, she was just, for, in some cases, she was just like literally just picking a line from somebody. And it's like, I like that line. We're going to use that line. You know, like she, she chose, um, well, Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend has started to write a line based on Karen O's line from Yeah, Yeah, Yes. You know, and she takes both of their lines and puts it together. She goes to this other artist, this guy named Mini K, and is like, you know, I want you to do your thing that you do, you know, to this. And there wasn't really this idea of like, I have a blueprint that I'm trying to build the building out of. It was more like I'm, I'm tending a garden. We're going to see what grows out of it. So we saw that pretty regularly with the artists we talked to. I was just thinking, this is a funny background story to writing the book. When we first turned in, turned in the book, the editor said, Hey guys, this is great, but you're 12,000 words short. <laughs> and so we we're like, Oh man, we have to write another chapter to this book. So we, we ended up writing the chapter on producing in the book, which turned out, I, I think for both of us, was one of our most rewarding chapters because we talked to Jimmy Iovine, we talked to T-Bone Burnett, we talked to Hank Shockley, and we were going to try to get Rick Rubin in there too, but we ran out of time. He, he's one of my top five people I would love to meet, Rick Rubin. Same. Yeah, same. Yeah. I, Although T-Bone Burnett, way to go getting, I mean... This guy's ability to create music and to create music f with others, his own music for movies. Uh, I mean, his talent and capability and what has come out of his touch uh, uh, is incredible. Yeah. Uh, T-Bone is amazing. One thing he told us is that he, he, was, he was not interested in what people were playing. He was interested in who was playing it. And he was, in his mind, helping an artist become their best was helping them reach deep into their influences 
to their childhoods, to the things that truly brought them joy or those moments in their lives where they they made their own creative leaps and helping them bring that back out into their performances. You know, so it was actually very similar. Like Hank Shockley said, he you know, he basically didn't manage the artist. He managed everything around the artist. And they're all kind of saying the same thing, even like Beyonce. They're saying, you know, you have to look at these collaborators as peers. You know, T-Bone actually said, uh, um, he's like, I produced Elvis Costello, but Elvis Costello produced me. You know, he's like, it, it's it's not, there's not a power dynamic there that we're working with. What we're actually trying to do is recognize that each of us brings a creative strength to the situation. And our job is to pull that out of one another and to teach each other and to support each other. That's the job of the producer. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and that's really what, I mean, that's what Beyonce is doing with Jack White. You know, there's definitely two peers, completely different, but they can come together and write a new song because they see each other in that way. Well, and there's this fascinating thing, you know, the Navy SEALs talk about this, this idea of self-organizing teams and sure there's a team lead and different, different, uh, uh, soldiers have different roles and so forth, but they're a self-organizing team. And if you watch them, who's in charge, it's hard to tell. And all the greatest teams I've ever been on, I know it sounds like I've lived on the left coast too long, but they're, they're, they're incredibly co-creative and whose idea it is nobody really knows. And at the end, nobody gives a shit about credit because you just look at it and you go, that was awesome. And I hope we're doing it again, like soon. And so, but there's this weird thing in business around hierarchy and command and control and who makes the decision that sort of, that sort of pisses all over that. And so how do we create workplaces that are not bullshit collaborations, but are, are exactly what you guys capture so beautifully in this book? Well, what if we change the way we even think of teams, right? Again, there's another story in the book where we talk to an executive called Steve Stout. And he talks about the way that he puts teams together is by not looking at people's majors, which is their titles and what's on their resume, but looking at people's minors, right? Their passion points. We tend to think of teams that we put together either based on uh, their hierarchy status or their skill set or expertise, if you will. But we all know that at the end of the day, many of us are in jobs that we don't really like and our real passion points lie elsewhere. And when we're exercising our passion points, it doesn't even feel like a job. So ultimately, the best job on the planet is one that aligns your passion with, with what, what, what you do for work. Uh, I've been fortunate in my career to have only had jobs like that. But, you know, I hate to interrupt you. That is not most people's experience. <laughs> and I think to your yeah. point, I think the pandemic and everything that came with it has forced virtually all of us to say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I here? Who am I with? Do I like these people? Am I getting paid what I should get? Am I... You know, all, all of the existential questions we've all been asking at the same time. And I, I think a lot of people don't feel that way about their career at all. Then th think if your manager bothered to ask you about your passion point and think if your team was organized around your shared interests, for example, what might come of that? Um, frankly, 
many companies are doing this. Uh, uh, Adidas uh, has uh, created different, I think what they call creator farms, where they throw different disciplines together. I'm not sure if they still have it, but they definitely had one in Brooklyn. And part of it was, okay, let, let's, let's send the, uh, you know, the materials engineer uh, from, from Germany over to, to Brooklyn to be in the same room with a hipster kid and with a designer from California and just see what comes out of it, right? But they all have a shared passion. And look, even in writing the book, it doesn't mean that we've internalized everything that's there. I mean, in many ways, we were custodians of other people's spiritual journeys and we just unearthed them, right? So I've reread our own book and you know what? You learn something new every time. I mean, just because you write something, it doesn't mean you've mastered it. Or just because you talk about something in uh, all these podcasts or interviews, it doesn't mean you've mastered it. So there's a, meta, a lot of meta-learning going on. I, I, I've actually thought a lot about my journey as a manager and how I've evolved. And even listening to or, or answering these questions that people bring up to us, I've questioned again and again my own approach to to management can i think more like a t-bone or a hank shockley or a susan rogers uh more so than thinking like a uh a, you know a toscanini or a uh you know uh, i don't know a uh a, 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 a carrion when it comes to conducting right uh, this the strict disciplinarian that scares the hell out of everybody you know the, the caricature at least that we have of of, of classical music conductors. Today is about activating talent. And companies yeah. are not about command and control. They're, they're, they're about uh, creating environments um, and cultivating uh, conditions for talent to, to flourish. I feel like there's so much we're encouraged. We're, we're encouraged to mitigate risk. That's what most business cultures are. De-risk everything. And um, it actually prevents so much growth opportunity to think that way. You know, I, I was just thinking of, you know, I've, I've always hired, I've always hired people for potential, not people to solve the problem at hand, you know, but I think it's, I see it all the time. We see people put out job listings because they have a gap in their workforce and it's to, you know, put a, put a peg in that, in that, in that circle. And I've, I've never felt that's a good idea because it's backward looking, it's reductionist it doesn't it doesn't create opportunity for you as an organization to grow or to get move in new spaces it may not you know here's the funny thing like it can be super inconvenient as a manager to take this attitude right because because you have you know you have you're trying to solve these problems with these people but but i would argue that's actually a really bad way to manage it's better to go back to those producers and say you know what are the conditions i want to create to allow more potential to allow more imagination to allow more creativity um, and, and we just have to keep, as leaders, we have to keep remembering that, reminding ourselves that it's actually worth the temporary inconvenience that may exist there has a much bigger upside if you're willing to do that. little aggravation now for a big payoff later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, gentlemen, I know I don't have you for too much longer. I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? You're on a cool show, man. So I ha- when, a, when, a, when a person like you says something like that, I have to ask the obvious question. What makes you say that? <laughs> because I feel we're talking to a kindred spirit. I mean, this, this, this book is about rock and roll 
both as a music and as a way of thinking and relating to the world, right? And I think that this show is a rock and roll show. It's 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 challenging orthodoxy, uh, and it's not the good old conventional format. And I love that, especially because it's ten o'clock in the evening here, and I've been up since about five a.m. Uh, so uh, thank you for uh, uh, making it fun fun for us to have this uh, this conversation. Yeah, it just went by too fast, really. Well, feel free to come back. Uh, I, I feel like I'm barely getting warmed up with you two guys. And um, I want you to know, I love this book. It's a great book. When your PR folks, uh, when I opened the email and I saw the title and then I sort of read the description, I was like, Hold. I was like, please, you know, I, I, to your point on who's doing it matters a lot, right? I'm like, please be the right guys to be writing this book. And you absolutely are the right guys to be writing this book. And so this is a book I've been waiting for somebody to write for, you know, 35 years and you guys wrote it and it's fucking awesome. And, and I think we live at an extraordinary time in business where the fundamental architecture and the fundamental core values and raison d'etre for why businesses exist are being examined by pe- people who value thinking about things. And this book comes, so this book comes at a very uh, important time uh, with a very powerful message. So thank you, gentlemen, and you are welcome back anytime. Oh man, thank you. Th- thank you so much. And we want this conversation to continue from your uh, your audience. So they can go to either twobeatsahead.com or in- reach us on, on LinkedIn at our respective profiles because the book is but the beginning of the questioning, if you will. Now we want the dialogue. So uh, eager to continue. And we'll make sure um, we'll make sure everybody has your contacts and websites and LinkedIn's and all that stuff in the show notes as well. And um, I hope a lot of people do reach out to you. It's a very, very powerful idea. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. Pleasure's all mine. Well, there they are. And um, if you don't, if you didn't enjoy that conversation, (laughs) I give up. And I would highly encourage you to pick up a copy of their book, Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation. I, uh, I read it and I loved it. Now, legendary businesses are flexible, adaptable, and they invest in their success ahead of the curve. So given that, don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information that you need when you need it. And ditch uh, this spreadsheet kung fu and all the old software that you have outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money today with NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And as you know, data is coming to everything. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, Zoom cocktail party tricks that I, uh, uh, questions I like to ask is, name me something that's not going to be connected to the internet. As a matter of fact, the amount of data created over the next three years will be more than the data created over the last 30 years. Wrap your head around that. 
digital transformations materially improve humanity's ability to execute. We've seen that during the crisis. And data transforms exponential possibilities into actual realities. Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. A scalable and reliable data platform for investigating, monitoring, analyzing, and acting on your data. Visit splunk.com slash D2E today. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D2E. And learn how to turn data into doing. All right. We would like to thank my good friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for the past 20 years. Check them out, atre.net. My friends at Spiro.ai are the leaders in proactive relationship management, helping you use machine learning and AI to drive revenue and sales. Check out S-P-I-R-O dot A-I. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, onelifefullylive.org. And uh, don't forget to visit uh, lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. If you have a different mind, you are going to love this newsletter, Category Pirates at lockhead.com. And don't forget Malibu Milk. I have recently discovered this wonderful product, got introduced to their uh, spectacular uh, and brilliant founder. And um, they are the world's first organic flax milk. And if you know anything about flax, you know how good it is. So check out Malibu Milk with a Y dot com today. This oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you, this oddcast does get produced in a studio that absolutely contains nuts. Remember to teach music, support your local rock stars, save water and shower with a friend. Don't forget the sage words of Louis Armstrong who said, there are two kinds of music, the good and the bad. If you don't change your mind lately, how do you know you have one? And thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Please stay safe, be legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.